Um, scripture today is from Genesis 15, 1, 5, and 6, then uh, Genesis 21, 1 through 3, and then 22, 1 through 18. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And he brought him outside and he said, look, towards heaven, and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And we go down to chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then to chapter 22. After these things... God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains to which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering And he arose and he went to the place that God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw that place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood from the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order and then bound Isaac, his son, And he laid him on the altar, on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram, and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called, to the, Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. 
Uh, good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We are continuing this morning in a series that we've been doing throughout the fall, which we will continue to do for, for a number of months, uh, working our way through the Old Testament scriptures. We're calling it the story of God. Uh, what we believe is that the scriptures are not just a collection of stories. They are telling one grand master story that explains uh, our lives, who we are, and what God is doing in us as a people that he's saving for his own name. Uh, and we've come to these stories here about this man named Abraham. And I said last week, and I want to say again this morning, that the Abraham stories, uh, given all that we've seen in Genesis 1 through 11, Abraham is the solution to all of the trouble that happened there. And the stories about Abraham are dominated by the ideas of mission and faith. And if you're a Christian, the New Testament says that means that you're a spiritual child of Abraham, which means that your life should be dominated by mission and faith too. And the result will be what we see here in the story, a life of radical obedience. I mean, is this shocking to you? should be. I mean, the Lord says to Abraham, take Isaac and offer him to me as a burnt offering. What does Abraham do? Do you see there in verse 3? So Abraham arose early in the morning. I mean, he didn't hesitate. He didn't even wait for breakfast. And, and what the New Testament writers make a big deal out of when they talk about this scene is not what we would. The New Testament doesn't make a big deal out of how strange it is that God would demand Isaac as a burnt offering of this man, but rather they focus their attention on how strange it is that Abraham would obey. This is a radical obedience. And it is what the Bible said should characterize our lives if we are those who have put our faith in Jesus and are following him. Now, James, for example, when he writes his letter to the churches in the New Testament... Here are some of the words he says. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. Now, that should unsettle us, and I bring it up because it's so startling. He says Abraham was justified by his works? What? I mean, don't we believe that justification is by faith apart from works? Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says? And that's why Martin Luther wanted to throw James out of the Bible. Right? He did. So what could James mean? He means that faith and obedience are complementary to one another. They're not contrary to one another. And true faith in God leads to a life of obedience. And what I want to argue for this morning is the kind of obedience we see from Abraham here. James says, without, um, without works, faith is dead. And the illustration he uses of a living faith, of the kind of faith leading to obedience that should characterize every Christian is this scene. And that should really sober us. It should, because this feels so outrageous. It would be easy to dismiss this passage, but we can't do that. And so I want to see three things uh, together this morning, okay, from this passage. Just along the idea of what it means for us to live a life of obedience, like the obedience of Abraham here. I want us to see the source, the source of Abraham's obedience in ours. Secondly, the snag. The snag that Abraham ran into and the snag that we run into or the obstacle to our obedience. And then thirdly uh, and lastly, where does the strength, where does Abraham find the strength? What pushes him up the mountain? Okay, so the source for his obedience, the snag or the obstacle to it, and the strength for it. And those are the three points in your outline. The call of God is the source of his obedience. The test that God offers is going after that obstacle. And then ultimately the lamb is going to be 
the object uh, of his faith that becomes the strength by which he's able to obey. Okay, so let's take that one by one. First, the source of his obedience, which is the call. Look there, verses 1 and 2 again. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to a place that I will show you. And of course, that should sound familiar. It's almost verbatim what the Lord says to him at the beginning of his life, or at the beginning of his his. Uh, his following the Lord's call in Genesis chapter 12. The Lord calls Abraham there in that passage in Genesis 12, go, leave the familiar, leave the comfortable, and move out on mission and become vulnerable and weak for the sake of following me. And also, uh, here, both here and there, the Lord calls him to go, but he doesn't tell him where he's going. Did you, did you notice? He says, Go to the region of Moriah and to one of the mountains that I will show you. And again, it's echoing Genesis chapter 12 where the Lord says, Go, follow me to a land that I'll show you when we get there. And Abraham left, we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, not knowing where he was going. And so this, the, the parallels in the two passages are obvious and they're meant to be so. And this is what it means to live by God's call. Abraham lives in response to the call of God. God comes to him and says, Go. And what does he do? He goes. Abraham was attentive to God's voice. God says, Abraham, and do you notice, what what does he respond with? Three times in the passage, actually. He says, here I am. Abraham, here I am. And in my house, one of the expectations for the children in my house is if mom and dad calls your name, you are immediately to respond with something like, yes, ma'am. Right? Or coming. And then immediately stop what you're doing and make your way to wherever the parent that called you is. I'm glad to report we're a perfect 853 out of 853 on that. We want our children to be attentive to the voice of their parents, to be ready to obey us, not because we're running a military academy out of our home, but because it's what we've all been made for. And it's what you see Abraham doing here. Abraham, here am I. Abraham, yes, Lord. Abraham, coming. There's a responsiveness, a readiness on Abraham's part to obey whatever the word is that he receives from God. And now, this is what we mean by God's call. There's, this is an important thing for us to consider together this morning because the idea of the call of God, living your life in response to his call, is really, really something that is predominant from the beginning all the way to the end of all Christian experience. I mean, according to the catechisms and creeds of our church and and other denominational entities like ours, you're not a Christian unless God calls you. I mean, you can't even begin the Christian life until you hear God's call. A Christian is is not somebody who's just trying to live their life according to an ethical code. You have to be called. God has to say, Drew, and, and, and come into your life in that way. And your faith is a response to his effectual call. But the call doesn't come just once. It keeps coming. So all of your life, almost every day as you go about your life, you live uh, in response to the call of God as it comes to you over and over again. And if you're a Christian, this, this, um, this radically reorients the way you think about all of life. I said last week that the Apostle Paul put it this way in his letter to the Philippians, which is just a great verse, I think. He said that his whole life, that every part of his life was lived trying to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus had taken hold of him. That Paul knew that God had put his hands on him for something, for some purpose, for some work, and that's the call. And so see, 
how do you decide which degree program to pursue in college? The call. I mean, how do you decide what career to pursue? The call, right? For Christians, a job is a vocation, right? Do you know what that word vocation means? Calling. It's vocatio. It's that Latin word that means the call. It's you, you pursue the career you've been called to, right? How do you decide who to marry and when to get married and when to have kids and how many to have and where they're going to school, going to go to school and all of these kinds of things? How do you make that decision? If you're a Christian, you make it based upon the call. And what this means is my life doesn't belong to me. I don't get to decide what I'm going to do and where I'm going to go. I'm no longer driven in my decision-making by my desires or wants. What happens is is I I completely surrender my whole life to God's intentions and desires for me. He can do whatever he wants with me. He can ask whatever he desires of me, and my answer is yes, here I am. And if that sounds a bit scary to you, it, it is. And it was for Abraham. I mean, think of all that the Lord has already asked of this man. He left his family and his country. He wandered around for 25 years waiting on God to fulfill the promises that he made to him. And then finally, after all of that time, he gets the thing his heart has wanted more than anything else, a son. He names Isaac. And then after all of that trauma comes the call again, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the mountains of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to me. How devastating do you imagine that was to him? And yet, here's what we learn. We learn from this call that the Lord has the right to make whatever demands he wants of us. He has a right to stretch out his hands and say, of anything in our life, because it all comes from him, That's mine. Give it to me. And nothing is off limits. He owns us. We don't own him. He doesn't orbit us. We orbit him. He calls us to his mission. We don't call him into ours. He is the potter. We are the clay, not the other way around. He is the creator. We are his creation. He is the master. We are his servants. And the reason we read a passage like this and scoff or flip out or just shut down is because in our sin, we have a hard time with all of that. We want to be in control of our lives, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news to you, but we're not. We want to call the shots, and we don't. We want... Veto power, and we don't have it. And that's what we have to deal with in dealing with this idea of the call. Now, let me make two quick applications of this, okay? And I want you to see, uh, I hope this is helpful to you. It was to me, actually, this week. Uh, First application is this. On the one hand, uh, God's call is expansive. And what that means is you have to be ready for anything. Nothing's off limits, so you can't narrow. Be careful of narrowing the range of possibilities, okay? I, um, I absolutely, I have a fascination with Zillow uh, on my phone. Do you know what Zillow is? It's a, you find houses and stuff and what's for sale out there, and I dream and feed my idolatries and all that kind of good stuff all the time. So I go on Zillow, and the first thing I do is I set the filter, right? Because I kind of know what the parameters are. I mean, I, okay, four bedrooms, 2,000 square feet, price range between this and this and so on, and then boom, all of the options pop up on the screen, and anything you know, the idea is anything within that range I'll consider, but anything outside of that range isn't really an option 
for me. But what we have to learn from this scene in Genesis 22 is when it comes to the call of God, there can't be a filter. Right? You can't come to the Lord and say, well, you know, I've been thinking, Lord, anything is fine with me as long as it includes this and this and we kind of form in between these kinds of things. No, you have to widen the possibilities. If you really want to get serious about living your life in response to the call of God, what the first thing you have to do, you really have to understand that there has to be a widening, an expansiveness of the range of what it is that you would even consider that God might begin to speak to you about. So the first point of application is you have to be ready to say yes more often. But the second point of application is not only is God's call expansive, it's also restrictive. And so the second point is what it means for you to live your life in response to God's call is you have to be ready not only to say yes more often, but at the same time, and this might seem counterintuitive, but I promise it's not, you also have to be ready to say no more often. Because the call is not only expansive, it's also restrictive. And if you live in response to God's call, one of the implications is you're not called to everything. Okay? So one of the things you have to figure out is what it is you're called to in order to have the time and the energy and the resources to do that work, then you're going to have to say no to a lot of other great opportunities. So there's an irony in the way a lot of us live our lives. We're very busy and very anxious, but our busyness and our anxiousness is not because there's so much to do, it's because we don't know what we must do. There's no holy must in our lives that keep us centered. And I, w- I want to I encourage you, pay attention as we read John's Gospel together in the coming weeks. Because in John's Gospel, one of the features of John's Gospel, the, the commentators and theologians will tell you, is uh, there's, a, there's like a ticking time clock that's going on in Jesus' life. And one of my favorite examples is in John chapter 7, which we read last week, I believe, his brothers come to him and say, we think you ought to go to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, well, no, I, I can't do that. And they, they don't understand. And he has to tell them, look, for you, any time is right, but my time's not yet. And I love that. He looks at his brothers and he says, look, you guys can do whatever you want to. I mean, you really can. You can just kind of wake up in the morning and decide what you want to do and go with that, but not me. Because there's somebody else calling the shots in my life. There's another, another clock that's, that's ticking down. Uh, that, I, that I'm aware of. And so Jesus, in one sense, he was not free to just get up and decide what he wanted to do. And over and over again, he, he goes, I must do this. I must, my time's not yet. And you just see Jesus restricting the things happening in his life because there is this holy must. There is this call from the Father that is like food and drink to him that he's keenly att- attentive to. So if you're going to live your life in response to God's call, You have to be ready to say yes more often because the call is expansive, but you also have to be ready to say no more often because the call is also restrictive. And that leads to the second point. That is that we immediately hit a snag. Just from what I just said, when we say no, you know, when a lot of times when we when we say no, when we should say yes to things, and we say yes to the things we often ought to say no to, we get this all wrong. And the reason a lot of times we get this all wrong is because we're being prompted not by God's call, but instead we're being driven by other concerns and desires, other hopes and loves, things we call idols. And that's the reason. Because our hearts are so taken up with idols is the reason God comes with this test. Now look at verse 1 again. Chapter 22 begins with the phrase, God tested Abraham. And that frames the entire passage. And we could easily misunderstand what God's doing here. We have to be very careful, okay? Because when we think of a test, we immediately jump to the classroom. 
And of course, a teacher gives a test because she wants to learn what her students have learned. She wants to know what they, what they know. And that's, that's the wrong metaphor, and I'm going to suggest something different. But the test here isn't, see, it isn't because there's something God doesn't know about Abraham. That can't be it. The test is not for God's sake, it's for Abraham's sake. So it's not that there's something God doesn't know about Abraham, there's something Abraham doesn't know about Abraham. And there's something Abraham doesn't know about God yet. So the test isn't so that God can learn about Abraham, it's so that Abraham can learn about his own heart, he can learn about the Lord and the way the Lord deals with his people and all these things. And both First Peter and James talk about the Lord working in our lives in such a way, and they're really hard passages because you have to grapple with it, but the testing of our faith they talk about in a trial or a hardship of some kind, that results in a greater faith. And the idea in both the places there is that when God sees a weak faith in us, he will often bring us into some kind of suffering, which is a test, in order to strengthen our faith. And so when we read here in verse 1, God tested Abraham. It means that the Lord has observed a weakness in Abraham that Abraham is still ignorant of and that he engineers a test to expose that weakness and lead Abraham to a greater faith and obedience. So what's the weakness in Abraham's faith that the Lord is trying to expose? We'll go all the way back to Genesis chapter 15 at the top of the passage there that that Vicky read a few minutes ago. And at the very beginning of all this mess, when the Lord comes to Abraham to to deal with him in this way, he says to him in chapter 15, verse 1, Abraham, I will be your shield, your very great reward. In other words, Abraham, you have to build your life on me. I have to be your ultimate source of joy and strength and security. That's the only way this is going to work. You have to trust me. And that's why we chose the passage for a call to worship this morning. The psalmist sings, God is his rock and his fortress his stronghold, his shield, right? And all of those images, see all that collection of images there? What do they have in common? The Lord is my source of security and protection. As long as I have him, nothing can get at me. He makes me safe. He shields me from the sadness and the pain of life. In him, I'm strong. That's what the psalmist is saying. And what has happened as this story has unfolded is that something else Other than the Lord has become Abraham's shield. Something else has become his ultimate source of joy and security. Look at the way God put it in his call there in verse 2. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go. And nearly all the commentators agree that this language is conveying that Isaac has become Abraham's emotional center. Isaac has become Abraham's great reward. Isaac... It's his great hope and joy. He's become Abraham's idol, his functional savior. And here's the issue. To this point, to this point, whenever the call came, no matter what God asked of Abraham, no matter what he asked of Abraham, the answer was always yes. I mean, Abraham was willing to leave his family. He was willing to leave his job. He was willing to leave his hometown. He was willing to give up security. He was willing to give up his comfort. But would he give up Isaac? Would he give up this son whom he loved? Or would Isaac become so important to him that his love for his son would turn his yes to the call into a no? And that's the reason for the test. See, God is saying, Abraham, there's something in your life that has become too important to you. And if you don't deal with it, it will kill you. And every single one of us, whether you would call yourself religious or not, all of us have something, a relationship, a material possession, something. Something. 
that is so profoundly important to your hope and joy that it could be said to be the object of your faith. And if you don't have that thing, if you, you can't receive life joyfully, you're anxious, you're insecure without it, whatever it might be, that thing, that person, that relationship, that, that possession, whatever it is, is the object of your deepest faith and trust. It's true of every single one of us, every single one to some degree. Uh, we might say, you know, God is my rock and my shield. We might sing that song, but functionally we are looking to the approval of others or to financial security or to uh, a relationship or some other kind of human status or power to bring us joy and to make us secure, and that's where we hit the snag. Um, when I was in high school, I uh, was a pretty good student. I actually graduated in the top 10 in my class out of 650 people at Winter Haven High School and uh, went on to Florida State to study uh, in the pre-med program. I mean, the, the ledger uh, interviewed a bunch of us. I remember my senior years, we were graduating, asking us what we wanted to do, and I said, I want to be um, a doctor. My father was a lawyer, and he told me not to do that, and so I knew I shouldn't go in that direction. And, uh, and so I thought maybe uh, a doctor would be a great thing, and, and they asked me why, and I remember being embarrassed because the only real reason I could come up with why I wanted to be a doctor is because doctors make lots of money. And I knew that I wanted to go and get, you know, a job that I could make lots of money because I was raised in a fairly affluent home. I've joked with, I, I drove a BMW 325 in high school. Uh, and, and so that was just a part of my life. And I just knew that I, whatever I did, I had to figure out a way to make a lot of money. And then um, I began to sense a call to ministry on my life, and it wrecked me. And here's how it started at first. Holy cow, ministers don't make any money. Well, that obviously can't be what the Lord is calling me to. And then it was, no, I'm, I'm serious, I'm embarrassed, it's, it's, it's shaming. Then I thought, well, you know, I've heard Christian counselors can still make pretty good money, so would that count as being called to ministry, but I could, so I could be called to ministry and still make fairly good money. And I remember, it really was a, a tumult of my soul for about, uh, you know, at least one, one whole summer before I just kind of finally said, okay, I give up, I'll do this, and I'm going to be poor for the rest of my life, and somehow it's going to be okay. Um, but there, there really was, uh, there was a powerful sense of the call of God on my life, and yet the snag for me was that, that the demand of the call I knew would be uh, that, that what had been such a source of security and comfort and hope for me all of my life that I would have to live without. And it's embarrassing to talk about that. Um, but the call won, obviously, um, and the Lord has provided for me in the end, so it's okay, Right? But you see, it, there really is a sense in which, even if God's not calling you to ministry, he's calling you to something. And in the same, in the same way that, that uh, a love for uh, security and financial, you know, financial security, financial peace, as Dave Ramsey would say, um, really, really was the snag through which I had to, to work. It can, it can work that way for every single one of us, because we're all called to something, and, it, and, it, and the same dynamics are really at play. So if financial security is your shield, like it was mine, you know, then a host of different things start to happen, right? You'll work too much to have plenty of money, which means less time to do ministry. Or you'll take a job that offers you more money but takes you away from friends and family in the place that you're called. You'll eventually have a bunch of stuff that you have to keep up with, which will mean less time and energy for other things, right? So, I mean, they're really, these are the snags. Or if your relationship's a shield, if your relationship is, if the love of a man or a woman or a child, you know, as long as that person loves you, you feel safe, if that's the case in your heart, then you'll hit a, hit a snag, right? You'll be driven by your need for that person's presence and love in your life, and you'll do, you'll do really dumb things. I have two very dear friends. Both of them felt a call 
to go to the mission field, uh, one of them told her mom and dad about that call, and her mom and dad said, well, we think that's dumb. And by the way, I hope you don't need us to watch your kids so you can go to meetings or anything because we're not even going to watch your kids to make this possible for you. Right? And then another friend who's, who's, whose parents said something to the effect, I can't believe you're doing this to me. Right? Now, that, that is, by the way, I hope that we are a congregation. If, you, if your kids come to you and say, I want to be a missionary, would you please say, praise Jesus, hallelujah, glory to God. Right? And celebrate them. But see, when, when a relationship, when a family identity, whatever it might be, when these things are the shield, when they're the thing in the center of our life that makes us feel okay and feel safe and feel happy about our life, when that happens, when the call, there'll be a snag. And you won't be free. You won't be free to answer yes to the call, even if it's you answering yes to the call of your child to go to the mission field. But I wonder, what's it in your life? What if the Lord came to you this morning and held out his hand as if to say, that's mine, give it to me? Tim Keller, who is a pastor that's been very influential on me and our church, and obviously a lot of what we're learning even as we go through the Old Testament, through the Jesus Storybook Bible, which his imprint is on, and also in sermons that he's preached, he, he just had this to say, I want to quote him at length, because I thought it was really good. He says, he says this, he says, you can never live the big life that Abraham lived. You can never live a life of justice and of courage and of wisdom and of self-control if you're, not always, if you're always being devastated by criticism or devastated by failure or always living in fear because you're going to lose this or lose that. Here's what's going to happen. Even if you have a fairly good life, life's going to come and take everything away eventually that you put your hopes in. And every time something like that happens, every time a difficulty comes, it's God saying, you think you have to have this to be happy. Your heart says you have to have this to have meaning in life, but all you need is me. And when you answer that call and you shift your heart's functional rest and trust and you offer up the thing that's being asked of you, you don't just say, no, 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 but you offer it up. That faith is the moment when you're able to say, my heart says I've got to have this, but all I really need is you. And as you offer it up more and more, you'll find nothing can push you around. Slowly, more and more, you turn into a person of greatness, a person who masters life instead of being mastered by it. Uh, Now let me apply this as well, and then let's go on to the third point, because we need to come to a close. And the application I want to make is just this, that we should expect life to be full of tests, like this test in Genesis 22. This is not a one-time, unrepeatable event. This is how God works all the time with everybody he loves. And that means that there are going to be times in your life when it feels like God is being cruel because he's thwarting you and taking away the things you love the most. It might actually feel like he's feel like he's killing you. But what we learn here is that he's actually saving you and doing you good. And I was reminded of a story that Elizabeth Elliot told about a friend that she visited in northern Wales who was a sheep farmer, and the shepherd would take the sheep every year and submerge them into a vat of antiseptic, which was absolutely necessary because without being completely uh, submerged in the antiseptic, the sheep would be eaten alive by the parasites that would come. And so the sheep would struggle, and the shepherd literally had to take their heads Uh, as they were swimming through this vat and pushed them underneath the water, almost as if he was drowning them. And and here's the way she she put it, which is marvelous. She said, and as their Lord and Master was pushing their head under the water, drowning them, at least as far as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? 
And she went on to say, I know the feeling. And I know the feeling too. There have been plenty of times in my life when I've wondered the same thing. And if this story in Genesis 22 tells us one thing, it tells us that sometimes your shepherd who's trying to save you, that to you it'll feel like he's trying to kill you. And so the third thing this morning is that we've got to deal with as we uh, try to round out what we are looking at here. The third thing this morning is then where do you find the strength for obedience? This is incredibly hard. So how do you get the strength to go in response to his call? How do you say yes to the call of God in your life and no to everything else like Abraham did? Where do you find the strength and the confidence and the trust when it seems like he's working to take away the things you love the most? Because see, what we usually do, we typically moralize this story, and that, that is we put all of our emphasis on Abraham's obedience. But like all of the stories we've looked at so far in this, in this Old Testament series, the main character in this story is not Abraham. It's, it's not a story about Abraham and what Abraham is doing for God. This is a story about what God is doing for Abraham. God is the hero of this story, not Abraham, and you have to know that in order to find the strength to obey like Abraham does here. And the voice of God comes, and then Abraham looks up, knife in hand, verse 13, and what does he see? He sees a lamb. And the spiritual lesson Abraham learns is just this, verse 14. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He will see to it. That's literally what it means. Father, I see the wood and the fire, Isaac says, but what about the lamb and Abraham's bold faith says, God will provide the lamb, my son. And so Abraham saw the lamb and the truth came home to his heart. The Lord will provide. He will see to it. The strength to answer yes in response to the call of God and say no to comfort and no to the approval of other people and no to the love of a mother or a father or no to living near your family or whatever it might be. The strength for obedience comes from seeing the lamb and learning the lesson Abraham had to learn that God will provide for your every need. Though you give up everything in response to his call, you will not lack anything. And so let's just do this one last thing. So how does, how does what we learn about the lamb here give us that kind of strength? So let me make two points. First, in the lamb, God is providing for our most basic need. See, God isn't asking Abraham to murder Isaac. He's asking Abraham to offer him as a sacrifice. And though that doesn't make a lot of sense for us, it would have for Abram. For this reason, the ancient peoples weren't as individualistic as we are. Their dreams were not for individual prosperity and success. They didn't think of themselves apart from their family uh, and their family identity. And so for them, family was the most important thing. And for the family, all of the hopes and all of the dreams for the family's uh, continued success lay in the firstborn son, as it rightly should, as a firstborn son. Scholars call it the, the law of primogenitor, that the firstborn son was uh, in, in the family, inherited the entire state, which I also am full, in full agreement with, and, um, and then he was expected to be the benefactor for the rest of the family. So he would inherit his father's place as the head of the family, and then he would take care of his mothers and all of his brothers and sisters and their families. And so all of the ancient cultures looked to the firstborn as the ultimate hope for the family, and yet what we read over and over again in the Old Testament scriptures is the Lord laying down a structure. God is saying to his people all over the place in the Old Testament, the life of the firstborn belongs to me. Right, the life of the firstborn is forfeit, right? At Passover, God brings down the sword of judgment against the Egyptians, and whose life is forfeit as an act of judgment? It's the firstborn sons. Unless, what? Unless a lamb is slain. 
In the law, there's, there, the life of the firstborn is forfeit unless there's a sacrifice that is made. That they, they literally had to make a sacrifice in the place of the firstborn son of the family, okay? Unless there's payment. And the ancients understood this, that what God was saying was there's a debt of sin that every family owes. So when God says to Abram, Abraham, give me your first, firstborn, he would have known what God meant. He would have known that God was a God of justice and that he owed him a debt of sin and that he was calling in his debt. And in a family-oriented, not individually-oriented society, the, fir- the forfeiture of the firstborn was God's way of saying, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Abraham, even your greatest hope for success in the future for your family is doomed to failure. All your righteousness is like filthy rags. There is a sin debt that you owe to me and you can't pay it but I can. And as Abraham raises the knife to slay Isaac as God had commanded him, in that dramatic moment in the story, the voice of God comes and Abraham looks up and he sees the lamb and we're told that he takes the lamb and he offers the lamb instead of or in the place of his son Isaac. And it's a picture of how God would ultimately deal with the sin debt that we all owe. In Second Chronicles we're told that the temple in Jerusalem was built on this very spot. And so, even after this scene for hundreds of years, lambs were slain in the place of worshipers as a payment for their sin debt. And of course, Moriah is the temple complex, which included Golgotha. And it's there at Golgotha in these mountains, almost at this very spot, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain to take away the sins of the world. And in the same way that this lamb was sacrificed, so that Isaac could be spared, Jesus died for us instead of us in our place to pay the payment for our sin so that we might be spared. This is a story that ultimately points to Jesus, the willing son, who, like Isaac, obediently and willingly went to his own death as Isaac carried his own wood. Isaac carried the wood upon which he would be laid to be offered as a sacrifice. The Lord Jesus carried the wooden cross through the streets of Jerusalem upon which he would be crucified. And here's the thing, and Jeff referred to it earlier, from Romans eight thirty-two. If God did not spare his only son, will he not also along with him freely give you everything you need? See, the Lord says to Abram, verse 12, now I know. Now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. But look, but look. If you go to the cross and you see Jesus hanging there, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, then you have every right, I mean, and you should, it would be right for us to look upon Jesus hanging upon the cross and cry out to the Lord, now I know that you love me. Now I, now I know. Now, finally, now I know, God, that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your only son, whom you love from me. And do you remember Abraham's question at the beginning of chapter 15 that we dealt with last week? How can I know? How can I be sure? I mean, God, you've not really exactly come through. How can I know that you're going to do for me and provide for me and help me and see to it in my life the way you promised? The strength for obedience to the call comes from knowing that you're absolutely safe and secure in God's love. His commitment to you, his generosity towards you, it has to be your shield and your fortress. And so how can you know? There's only one way. You have to look in this story, and through this story, see the Father's love for you. And when you can say, now I know that you love me. Now I know that you will always provide for me. Now I know that if I leave whatever it is I'm called to leave, but cling to you, that I will have everything that I need. Now I know 
you'll see to it because you have not withheld your only son whom you love from me. Then and only then will you be finally free to say yes to God's call and no to everything else. And that's the kind of people that we want to be. It's the kind of people that can take a city, which is the thing we're hoping for. It's the kind of people that can live a radical obedience that will be to the fame and the glory of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so let's pray as we prepare to come to this table this morning. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, may we hear uh, in the rest of this service, in the call of the benediction, uh, the call that you have upon our lives to go. Uh, you've, You've told us, you commissioned your church with the words, go into all nations, making disciples of them and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And so uh, not a single one of us can consider themselves exempt. And yet we feel our weakness, at least I do, in all of the ways that that I get snagged and all of the ways that I am not free because of the, the other loves that I've given my heart to that weigh on me, that take so much of my affection and cause me to be so fearful and so anxious and so nervous about trying to live without them. And yet, Father, we pray uh, that you would woo our hearts as we come to this table this morning, that, that, this, that this meal that we uh, celebrate would be the final proof for us, that we would be able to look up to you and say, yes, now we know. Now we know. That you indeed do love us. Because you've not withheld your only son from us. And that that would be the power and the strength that we need. To answer the call, whatever it might be. So that we might indeed be a people that would glorify and honor you through the fruit that we bear. And we pray all these things uh, in your name and for your sake. Amen. God is calling us to our city and to uh, the ends of the earth. And so the courage and the strength to go wherever and to whomever and under whatever circumstances he might call you comes from knowing uh, that he promises to go with you. And that's what we read at the end of the Gospels. It's also what we do in an act every week at the end of our service. I raise my hand over you in a benediction, which is the words of God, the good words of God towards you. Uh, that can be for you the comfort and the source of a shield. These words can be a shield for you as you go to live your life in response to his call. So receive them then. The Lord uh, would may, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.